Will you stand now for uh, the reading of the Word of God? I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, and our text this morning will be verses 5 through 18. Acts 18, verse 5. Will you stand out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant Word of the living God? Uh, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. When they resisted and blasphemed, he took out his garments and he said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean. From now on I'll go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and were being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul at night by a vision, Don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking. And do not be silent. I'm with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names on your own law, look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge of those matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat, and they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila and Sancreia. He had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. You may be seated. Over the years, I've shared with you my utter disdain and contempt for running. It's miserable. So the illustration I'm about to give to you violates all of that, but I think it's useful and it ties to our text. And recently I've been uh, listening to some podcasts about physical training and I stumbled across something I'd never heard of before, perhaps you have. It's called ultramarathoning. By the way, I don't know why you'd have to add ultra to marathoning. 26 miles is enough for anybody. But people do these ultra marathons, and I'm talking races well over 100 miles. In fact, one of the uh, most noteworthy ultra-marathons is called the Badwater. And the Badwater starts at 279 feet below sea level in the Badwater Basin in Death Valley, the Earth's lowest point. And it uh, follows a trail up through the desert into the mountain to the portal to Mount McKinley, which you'll know is the highest mountain peak in the contiguous United States at over 14,000 feet. So you go from the lowest point in the earth to one of the highest points in America, 135 miles. Oh, by the way, it's running July. 
and the temperatures uh, at start time are about 130 degrees Fahrenheit. And by the time you get to the top of the run, they're a chilly 30 degrees. And by the way, you have to do that in the course of 48 hours. When you think about that, you think it's crazy, isn't it? One of the guys I was listening to uh, on a podcast happened to have run this race several times, by the way. But uh, one of the things that he mentions is that he's run this race, and he's run by places called Furnace Creek, the Devil's Cornfield, Stovepipe Wells, the, the place names tell you how miserable it is and what kind of enormous mental and physical fortitude a person needs in order to complete this race. And, and one of these guys tells the story about his very first time through. He got to mile 122. That means the finish line is nearly an eye shot away. And he said, I can't go anymore. Imagine running 122 miles in 26 hours without getting so much as a wink of sleep and seeing the finish line not far away and say, I can't do it. He couldn't do it because he had a, a blister on his toe the size of his face, as Gus would say. It was so big that it couldn't barely fit in his shoe, and every single time his foot hit the ground, it felt like it was coming right through his shoe, or like he had a knife driving into the bones of his feet. And he said, I can't make it. He was ready to quit the mission. See, it's in moments like that when you begin to realize that completing missions such as a race like Badwater or any other thing in life often pushes us to the brink of our resources. It pushes us to a point of utter and complete mental and physical exhaustion. And there's only one thing that can enable us to take one step further and to go on, and that's resolve. But the problem is, resolve's not easy to come by. It seems to me, as you think about life and dealing with all of its difficulties and disappointments, obstacles and challenges, failed expectations and ruin and broken dreams, one of the hardest things to do is to continue to find motivation to go forward. You see what happens to us when we lack that motivation is we quit, just like that fellow wanted to give up at 122. But the problem is you can't quit. You can't quit being a mother. You can't quit your marriage. You can't quit your job. You can't quit paying your bills. You can't quit being responsible. And yet you feel like it. Because all the resources you have are gone. See, this is a very important idea this morning as we come into our text because you may think that bad water races, ultra marathons, and blisters causing your toe to, to pierce through your feet and all these other things are entirely unrelated to Acts 18, but they're not. Because what I want you to know this morning, people of God, as you read this text, the Apostle Paul was exactly in those places where you often get in your own life when you are ready to stop, when you are ready to quit. When you know you have a calling before you, and it's a righteous calling, and it's the right thing to do, in the right place with the right people, and yet you just don't feel like going on anymore because you have lost heart and you have lost resolve, that's where Paul was. 
In the midst of that moment of angst and of disappointment and spiritual fatigue and self-doubt and questioning, Jesus comes to Paul. And He gives him a word of recommissioning. That's what this text is about. Jesus comes to Paul and gives him a word of recommissioning. And what we learn from it is that perseverance and mission is a spiritual duty. What we learn from this, people of God, is that perseverance in mission, in a Christ-given mission, is a spiritual duty which is sustained by great promises. And so we're going to take that main point and apply it to ourselves in two ways this morning. First of all, we're going to, we're going to develop the point of the spiritual duty of mission perseverance. And then second of all, the divine promises sustain perseverance. Keep that main point ahead of you right now. Keep it before your eyes as we think through our text. That perseverance and mission is a spiritual duty sustained by great promises because about 11 minutes, we're going to have to work through details in our text before we can get to this main idea. But you really can't get into this uh, the marrow of the text and lay hold of its message for us this morning without dealing with these details. They're not peripheral or unnecessary to know because they tie into the message. And one of the things I want to tell you this morning, first of all, people of God, when Paul sat before that mission, he was ready to give up. He'd been busy. He had been busy serving the Lord. Notice here in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word. Well, if y'all were here last week, you know why that's important. Because as you look back at verse 4, what you see is that Paul was giving himself to mission. He was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath. Remember, Paul came to Corinth for the express purpose of raising up a church there. The only problem was, Paul was alone. There, were no, there was no church. There were no Christians. There were no co-laborers. And they never heard of Jesus in Corinth. And yet he had to raise up a church. And so we said this was always his aim, was to get to that synagogue in order that he could preach and, and find a mission field. But before he could do that, he had to locate a place to stay where he could launch mission from. He had to find co-workers who would help him in that mission. And he had to get a job. He had to support himself. And so basically what you could say is you could take the old song that everybody's working for the weekend and say that applied to Paul. He was working for the weekend because it was on the weekend where he was finally free of his duty so he could go minister to the Word to people in Corinth. And so that's what he was doing. But all of a sudden, now in verse 5, when you read here, that when uh, Silas and Timothy came, you learn that he began devoting himself completely to the Word. Here's a sort of pivot point in our text. We have a, a before picture. This is what Paul was doing. He was working for the weekend. And now we have a sort of after picture uh, after Saul, uh, Silas and Timothy come down. Now he is devoted entirely to the Word. And man, it's a powerful image. It means to be submerged in the Word. And the idea here is he's moved from a tent-making ministry and a part-time ministry of the Word to a full-time ministry in the Word of God. He's preaching with boldness and compassion now. He's devoting himself entirely to the work of mission. It's as if he's experiencing a whole new sense of the power of God with him. You see, this is an issue. He's not going to feel that way much longer. But for now, Paul has been giving himself to mission. And notice the mission here 
as it unfolds in verse 5. He was devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. See, here he is. He's preaching with, with compassion. This word means logic. It means reason. But he's not just a philosopher. He's coming with the message that Jesus is the Christ. What does it mean to say this morning that he was preaching that Jesus was the Christ? First of all, it means he's preaching the humanity of Jesus. He is preaching the human nature of this Jesus, the one who was born of the Virgin Mary, having been conceived uh, by the Holy Ghost. He, he is preaching the one who the Apostle Paul says in another letter, uh, didn't consider the prerogatives of, of divinity and eternity to be, to be something to be grasped at, but he set him aside that he could take upon himself a true human nature so that he could identify with us, so he could be our Redeemer. He says, this person, Jesus, that you've heard about, who was dazzling people with stories and miracles as he uh, trod the dusty trails of Palestine with his sandals on, this is a man, this is Jesus. He's Savior. He preached the humanity of Christ, but he also preached the mystery of his person because he preached not just the man Jesus, he preached that Jesus was the Christ. Which means he was the great promise of redemption. Going all the way back to the very first verses of the Bible, we learn of a powerful deliverer who was promised to come. That was the Christ. When you sing the Psalms, you sing of a powerful king, the royal son of God, Psalm 2, who would be set upon his hill to rule in power and glory over all things. We learn about this, uh, this uh, wonderful Messiah to come from Isaiah 9-6, whose name is Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. Well, that's the Messiah. That's the promised Redeemer. And so Paul says to these Jews, this one of great expectation, this, this one of hope and promise, this one who is the only mediator between God and man, He's here. He preached Christ for their pardon, for their forgiveness, for grace, and for salvation. Paul's been at work. But notice what the Jews did in response in verse 6. They resisted and they blasphemed. You see, here is when a sense of mission hits the buzzsaw which steals hearts. He gave everything. He poured out his soul to people who he considered his kinsmen according to the flesh because they were. And he preached to them the, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the mercy of God. He held it out before them. And the thing that they did is they resisted him, which means they were hostile towards him. And what's more, they blasphemed, saying that it was a despicable message. So what did Paul do? Did he quit his mission here? Nope. Look at the rest of verse 6. He shook out his garments and he said, Your blood is on your own head. I'm clean. I'm going to the Gentiles. Now, this sounds harsh, doesn't it? It sounds pretty harsh. Shaking out your garments, what does that mean? Well, it's just a way of saying, I'm done here, folks. The fellowship has been broken. The ties that bind are severed. I'm out. But did you have to go and say the blood's on your own head? That's not rude, but it's also kind of scary, isn't it? 
But you know that he borrowed that language from the Old Testament? He borrowed it from Ezekiel chapter 33. And if you haven't read that for your devotions recently, but just really quick to tell you what it's about. Uh, it's about the watchman on the wall. God said, I'm going to raise up a watchman on the wall for Israel. And his job is going to be stand on the wall. And as he looks on that wall and he sees the speck of dust on the horizon, which is the soldiers kicking up dust, ready to attack the land, to bring the sword upon the land, the watchman on the wall was to cry out and say, the danger is coming. And the Lord said to the messenger, the prophet, uh, and, and the watchman on the wall, if they don't listen to you, the blood is on their head. So that's where it comes from. So it's not as harsh as you think it sounds at first. But notice, it's not his fault. The watchman on the wall is to simply declare something that's for their good. To, to spurn it, to reject it, to despise it. I was foolish and it's dangerous. This is the imagery the Apostle Paul is taking up. He says, I've come here to serve you. I've come here to declare the, the hope of promise to you. I've come here for mercy. I, I've preached you a wonderful message. You've rejected it. It's your own peril. He says, I'm clean. I'm clean of all this. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He doesn't quit, does he? He just said, I'm not going to sit here in the synagogue. You don't want to listen to the message? I'll go to the Gentiles. It's not a permanent going to the Gentiles. Because our, our text that we read through in the verse 18, we, we noticed here, if we had read to verse 19, he came to Ephesus, the first thing he did is go to the synagogue. So it wasn't completely done. He was done in Corinth with these Jews. Except for, God has a mysterious way of doing things. When he goes to the Gentiles, guess who he converts? A Jew. Look at verse uh, 7 and 8. Well, he was in the synagogue preaching away, and verse 7 says he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. That means he was Greek, and that he kind of hung out around the synagogue because he liked to hear the Old Testament readings. He was touched by them. He had a house next door, so the imagery is funny. Paul uh, went out the front door of the synagogue and landed on the front porch of the house next door, and he began to get on the soapbox and preach the gospel. And here's what's uh, kind of a touch of irony in all this. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed. <laughs> so uh, here he's been preaching away in the synagogue for who knows how long, and he goes next door having uh, washed his hands of dealing with the Jews in, in Corinth, and the, the mysterious ways of the Lord is when he gets there, he converts the leader of the synagogue with his whole house. And that man must have been a face for the rest of the ministry there because you're not told who else was saved and how many were saved. What you get is a very dynamic image here in verse 9. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. You see, the, they were hearing the Word. Remember, we told you how Paul was a preacher. He, he preached with logic and reason, but but with compassion and a love of souls. Because we're told that he sought to persuade people. And this is the evidence of it here. He, he brought the Word of God to them in a way that was powerful and moving and touching and gracious. And you see here that when people heard, they were weighed down with the, the force and the strength and the power and the beauty and the grace and the wonder of the message. And many were believing, and many were being baptized. 
Was that 11 minutes? Maybe it was a bit faster. That's the backdrop. What you've seen here is that Paul was busy engaged in mission. He went to the Jews until they shut the door on him. Then he went to the Gentiles and it seemed like things were flourishing. And yet you read in verse 9 that Jesus comes knocking on his door. Virtually everybody who reads this, the commentators suggest, we haven't been given all of the information that we should know. Because why in the world is it that in verse 9, after hearing about this testimony of a vibrant, thriving, energetic ministry, why in the world does Jesus come knocking on the door? Well, he had to to commission Paul to persevere in mission because it was his spiritual duty. I, I take the whole force of this text here, the language and the verbs and all of it as, as an indicator that something's missing. Jesus comes knocking. I kept saying that a bunch of times. Your text tells you it was the Lord, right? But in Acts, that's Jesus. Because remember, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is trying to explain the phenomena of Pentecost, he says, it's because this Jesus whom you've crucified has been raised to the right hand, and He has been made both Lord and Christ. Very easy for us to believe that Jesus is the Lord person here. But just to confirm that for yourself, look at verse 8. Contextually, you're told here, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. That's Jesus. You believe on the Lord for salvation, right? You believe on Jesus. So this is Jesus coming to uh, speak to Paul. Notice the form of it is a vision. It says he came in the night by a vision. And virtually all commentators assume now, as you piece these details together, that this is a commissioning. Why? Because you have a divine messenger appearing to a person. Uh, you have the messenger calling that person to a very specific task, which you do here. We'll see that in a moment. And then a promise that I'll sustain you in it. So what you have here is a, is a recommissioning service. Paul's already been commissioned to be a preacher of the gospel. He read about that in Acts chapter 9. This is Jesus coming to him again and saying he needs to buck up. And so what he does here is he comes to Paul and he speaks things that are necessary to fire him up to mission and you know, Calvin points out something here. He says it's not every day that Jesus shows up to people in a vision, tells them what to do. This must have been necessary. This must have been necessary. But I think it's important for us to understand, people of God, before we get into the recommissioning to mission here, is to understand where Paul is. He's had it. He has been dealing with pesky people for a long time. And let me say, more than pesky people. He's been stoned. He's been beaten. He's been jailed. He's been verbally abused. He's been intimidated. He's been bullied. He's been beaten down. He's been left for dead. He's been left alone. He's been led in all kinds of, of um, isolated places. This guy has been under an enormous load of psychological and emotional and physical pressure. It feels like he's giving up. He's feeling faint. 
And so Jesus comes because the mission is just that important. And I want you to take note of now, people of God, how it is that the Lord recommissions him to service and to mission. And he does so with the threefold admonition. You can see it unfold in verse 9. Here's our admonitions, and our first one may take us by surprise. He said, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The obvious implication is that he is afraid. But he says very first of all to the Apostle Paul, the thing that you need to do is be bold. You've been given something to do. You serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. So you can't do this work in a cowering, timid, fearful, pitiful manner. You have to do it with boldness. You have to take up your calling with the heart of a lion. Humble boldness. What else does he say? He says, you need to keep on speaking. You need to keep on speaking. That's what he has been doing. You saw it in verse 4. He was reasoning in the synagogue. You saw it in verse 5. He was devoting himself to the Word. You see the evidence of it in verse 8. People are hearing and believing. He's been doing it. But the problem is, when he loses heart and he wants to give up, he won't be speaking. The gospel won't be going for him. And so Jesus comes to him and says, you need to let that fire which is in your bones come out. You need to speak boldly. And then finally, and this kind of corroborates that there's a real problem here, don't be silent. He said, pull the tape off your mouth. Because the word silent here is a sort of imposing, a willful imposing restraint upon yourself. And this uh, seems to me to, to really indicate that the problem here is the apostle is worn down with spiritual fatigue. He's lost the grip on the mission that's been given to him. And he's completely worn down by all of the obstacles, the constant tension, the resistance, and the blaspheming that you see in verse 6. And he just feels like he can't do it. And Christ says, you can't be silent anymore. Probably in italics in your text, but that's because that's a, a good interpretation of what's going on. He, he can't be silent He's to speak boldly. He's to be an amplifier for the gospel. So what I want to do this morning, people, God, is propose you this. I want you to take note of how the Lord motivates Paul to mission. And it should be obvious to us that he does that through command. There are three sharp, terse, crisp, clear commands. Don't fear. Speak. Don't close your mouth. So what I want to propose to you this morning, people of God, is simply this. When Jesus Christ motivates to mission, He motivates to mission with His word of command. You see, there's all kinds of techniques that are used to motivate people. There's a virtual cottage industry of self-help literature out there on how to get your mojo back. Some of it's interesting. Some of it claims to be based upon the most cutting-edge research from psychology and so forth. But one of the things that seems to per pervade through this literature is the notion that what I really need is motivation, which means that I need my emotions to get fired up. 
And what Jesus doesn't do is make appeal to emotion. He makes appeal to will. He makes appeal to resolve. He makes an appeal to determination. He makes an appeal to duty. Don't fear. Speak. Don't be silent. This is the model. Jesus recommissioning Paul to take up the mission that has been given to him through appealing to uh, spiritual admonitions and commands as a model for how we are motivated to our mission. By the way, we all have mission. Whatever Jesus Christ has called you to do in your place and station in life is your mission. And we all have it. We've all been called to be disciples, right? That's what Jesus says, make disciples. We're all disciples. We've been called to be servants of Christ. Some of us have been called to be fathers. Others have been called to be mothers. Some have been called to husbands. Some have been called to be wives. Some have been called to vocations. Some of us have been called to be keepers of vows and promises. We have all kinds of mission that's been given to us. There's all kinds of things that we have been called to do. And so the way we sustain ourselves in that thing that we have been called to do is to take note of how Jesus sustains and cultivates and provokes Paul to mission, appeal to will, appeal to duty. He gives us commands. What are your commands this morning? Are there any disciples here? Are there any disciples here this morning? You'll remember the fundamental command that Jesus gives to His disciples. He says, He who would be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Commands. Appeal to will to duty, to resolve. Deny yourself. Are there any husbands here this morning? Well, the Word of God says to husbands, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. The most thoroughly self-sacrificial love is what Christ requires. Are there any fathers here? The Word of God says, Fathers, love your children. Don't provoke them to wrath, but train them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Are there any children here? The Word of God says to children that they are to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. And we could go down the list in Scripture. We can find all kinds of duties and stations and obligations in life. That's your mission. And yet, how often is it that we feel just like Paul did here? We can't speak. We're fearful. We can't go forward. We're fatigued. We're worn out. Well, I'm struck by what Jesus did to Paul. He didn't come with um, with soft-pedaling words and shoulder-rubbing. He came to his apostle and said, Don't be afraid. Speak. Don't be silent. He gave him commands. Endurance and mission is grasping with resolve the duty. The other thing that I'm struck by here is the priority. 
Notice that the very first word of commissioning or recommissioning to the apostle is the, is the command to not fear. I take that to be significant of all the things that he could have said. First of all, the very first thing that he did say to his apostle was, don't fear. Or to be positive about it in English, be fearless. Do you know how liberating it is to do something without fear? I mean, this in some way is the heart of resolve. This is the uh, this is the gliding upon the wings, if you will, of duty to be able to do something without fear. And Jesus understood that. He called his apostle to humble boldness. I'm struck by how the apostle later on in ministry uses virtually the same appeal to resolve to his disciple Timothy. Timothy gets a lot of bad press because he seemed to be a little bit timid. It felt like sometimes he, he lacked heart. You know, lacking heart is a biblical image for, for lacking resolve, and it's an obvious common sense way to describe being unmotivated because if your heart is in something, man, you got all the energy in the world. But when your heart's not in it, you just keep asking yourself, why shouldn't I just give up? That's what Timothy was doing. He had been given an important task in ministry, and yet because he was browbeaten and worn down by so much, he'd stopped doing his job. And so Paul writes him up a letter, and he says to Timothy, he tells him to fan the, his gift into a flame because he says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power. This is the same thing that he says here. Jesus says to Paul, don't fear. God hasn't given us a, a spirit of fear or timidity or cowardice. He's given us a spirit of, of power. So he calls us to his service with humble boldness. If you are wavering in mission this morning, I would have you come back to this initial command. Maybe you're not feeling like holding your ground this morning. Well, what Paul would say to you and what Jesus would say to you is do it without fear. Did Christ give you that call? Do it without fear. Do you have great enemies and great obstacles and great challenges? That's okay. God put them there. He wants you to have them. It's one of the hardest things to believe in the Christian life, that whatever misery and sorrow and suffering you have in your life is that God put it there so that you'll learn to cry out to Him and seek His help so that you will mature through that affliction. So there's two things that we take away from our text is that Jesus Christ motivates to mission through appealing to resolve to spiritual duty. It is a priority in it all to not fear because we serve the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is risen and exalted and sits at the right hand of God in heaven. But the story isn't over there. Because that brings us now to our second point. Jesus called him uh, to recommission to mission through appealing to spiritual duty. But he adds something else to it. And that's divine promises. And we learn here that that's what sustains us. 
Look at the rest of the thought as it unfolds. And I'm sure you noticed that four at the beginning of verse 10 because it's so important, isn't it? It's a conjunction. means it's connecting the uh, commands of verse 9 now with something that follows, a foundation, and here it is, promise. We had three commands, and now we have three promises. You could really just translate that because. He's given him the reasons for why he can and must persevere in mission. He's had the admonitions, and now here's here's the spiritual vigor of it. Here's the strength of it. Promise, I'm with you. The very first thing that Jesus uses to ground those admonitions and that appeal to resolve and to determination and will is the promise of His abiding presence. I'm with you. The very language and the wording reminds us of of what? It reminds us of those words of, of the risen Christ as He addresses and commissions His disciples in a mountain in Galilee. And He says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto Me. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you. The overlap in language tells us then that this is foundational to commissioning to duty. I'm with you. The abiding presence of Jesus Christ is enough. But then he adds to it. No man will attack you in order to harm you. Remember now, he's experienced the opposition in terms of resistance and the blaspheming. And you know, it would only be natural for Paul to think about those wounds upon his back. Remember, he has been lashed with a whip almost to the point of death. He's been stoned and left for dead in Lystra. This man knows what it is to suffer for the sake of Christ. And when he hears the pitchforks at the gate, believe me, he starts to remember the wounds. He starts to think it's not very much longer until the whip is laid upon the back or something worse. He knows what it means when when people start rabble-rousing and opposing and being violent with their words. And here's what Jesus says. No one will harm you. They may attack you, and we read the rest of it. We don't have time to expound it today, but certainly they did raise a a, a, a ruckus, if you will. But, But the promise was kept. No one laid a glove on him. He gave him a promise. No one will harm you. I'll keep you safe. No matter how difficult the calling would be, if God has called you there, keep you safe. The most dangerous and difficult calling on earth is the best place to be if that's where Jesus wants you. That's hard to to think about sometimes. But it's true. The hardest and most difficult calling on earth is the safest place to be if that's where Jesus wants you. And then notice what he says finally. Another promise uh, to motivate him to ministry is a great work lies before him. I have many people in this city. 
Boy, this is a great statement of compassion, isn't it? Paul hasn't met these people. He doesn't know what their faces look like. He doesn't know their names. He doesn't know their problems. But Jesus says, I do. I have a people in this city. I have a people in this city and you are the instrument to take the gospel to them. A great work lies before you, Paul. You can't stop now. And you think about that great work in the context of who these Corinthians are, and you really realize it was an astonishing work, wasn't it? Man, the Corinthians are the hardest, most difficult people in all the church, right? These people should have been born with boxing gloves and headgear on. They're always having problems. And it's because many of them came from a tough life and background. Paul summarizes what some of them were. Listen to this. He says, Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. I love reading that verse because it reminds me that the church of Jesus Christ is a safe place for sinners. It's a hospice for people who are broken. It's a place of refuge for people who've been beaten up and know the sorrows and sins and difficulties of this life. The church is not the place for good people. It's a place where bad people are being redeemed and built up. It's a place where people come to receive grace and forgiveness and help. This verse testifies to it. And Jesus says, these are the people that I need you to reach. And you're to be the mouthpiece of the gospel. There were people who need to hear the message of pardon. There were people who needed to hear the hope of the gospel. There were people who needed the help of grace. There were people who needed to hear the name Jesus. There were people who needed to be saved from their sins. We forget just how hopeful the message of the gospel is until we talk to people whose lives have been ruined. And then they hear that message. And they find that there is peace and that there is hope and that there is help from God above and there is mercy. There is compassion. You see, and this is what Christ calls him to. He, he calls him to mission with a word of promise. I have a great work for you. That's the same for us this morning, people of God. You've got a great work. You've got a great work. If you're a mother, you have a great work. Training your children, teaching them, blessing them, being help to them, consoling them, teaching them. You've got a great work. If you got a job this morning, you've got a great work. You know, some jobs aren't that fun, I know that. But if you got a job, you have a great work. You have some, Jesus has, has given you things to do with your hands so that when you wake up in the morning and plant your feet on the ground, you have a purpose and a mission for that day. It's not a day for lounging. It's a day to get up and serve. 
whatever it is that Christ has called you to, it's a great work because Jesus has called you to it and called you to glorify His name there. And so, as Paul suffers under the wounds and as he groans under the weight, he's been grinding it out with nothing but one failure after the next. He's ready to stop. But Jesus says, you have a great work to do and I'm going to be with you. So don't fear. Speak boldly. Don't be silent. He calls him to duty and quickens him to mission. And in so doing that shows us how he calls you. As we conclude with a word of application this morning, I want to take that notion here from our text. We've already heard it loudly and clearly that we're obligated to persevere. It's our spiritual duty. We understand that there are commands that are addressed to our will that address resolve. But remember, our main point this morning is that perseverance in mission comes as we resolve to do our spiritual duty sustained with promises. And I think that's the thing that I would have us walk away with this morning, people of God, as we contemplate our calling to persevere in the things that we have been given to do, is that we need to fortify our minds with the sense of promise which is attached to the things that Christ has called us to do. And here, at the outset of this set of promises, we have one that stands large. I'm with you. You know, one of the greatest fears in all of life is being alone. One of the greatest fears in all of life is being alone. You can put someone through almost any kind of unbearable task or situation as long as they believe there is somebody there to help. You can endure almost any difficulty as long as you believe there is a team there to sustain you and support you and to help you. But the one thing you feel like you just can't do anymore is when you feel alone. And when we feel alone, we want to give up. Jesus addresses one of those fundamental human needs and one of the most essential ingredients and staying focused on the things that we're supposed to do as He leaves us this promise. You're not alone. I'm with you. I bet you there are people here this morning who feel like they're alone. There's probably people here who feel like they're alone. Perhaps they feel alone because they've shut other people out of their life. Perhaps they feel alone because they're surrounded by people who don't seem to agree with anything that they believe in. Perhaps somebody feels alone this morning because they think that their spouse has checked out on them. Perhaps somebody feels alone here this morning because they're trying to raise their children and it feels like they have zero help. And sometimes people feel alone when they're surrounded by people. 
they're not connecting with them somehow, and they're not feeling like they have help. That's the Apostle Paul here. He's got Silas. He's got Timothy. He's got Priscilla and Aquila. He's got a host of new converts. And yet, the very first thing that Jesus says to him, I am with you, which tells us he penetrated the heart of his concern. He felt alone. And so here we have a great promise which sustains us. We have a great promise that sustains us this morning, which helps us understand why we can't quit. Christ is with us. People of God, I want you this morning, if you feel alone in your sense of calling, your mission, your direction in life, I want you to take your loneliness and run to Jesus Christ because He says, I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. So that means that you can press forward in your duty because Jesus Christ is with you. You can work to repair a broken relationship because Jesus Christ is with you. You can take on great challenges that you don't think you can handle that feel as if they are beyond the grasp of your ability or reach because Jesus Christ is with you. You can deal with difficulty at work with your co-workers and your boss and all of the problems that go along with it because you're not alone. You can battle illness and pain and suffering because you're not alone. You can deal with your emotional and psychological distress. You can work your way out of the depths of the deepest and darkest depression because you're not alone. You need to hear these words of Jesus Christ this morning as He comes alongside a weary and grieved and and completely worn out and spiritually fatigued disciple. And he speaks the most powerful and important words you can imagine right into his ears and through that into ours and into our hearts. I'm with you. I'm with you. Because Jesus is with us, then we have a great call to action. Don't fear. Soldier on complete your mission. Father, we thank you for words of encouragement that come from old texts. We identify ourselves this morning with not what is powerful, but what is weak, because we've all been in those places where we're afraid, where we're worn out, we've been beaten down, and we feel hopeless. But we thank you, O Lord, that Jesus Christ has come to give cheer to the hearts of those who are discouraged. Part of His redeeming and sanctifying work in our life is this wonderful promise of His presence. And with you even unto the end. Lord, for those who are discouraged here this morning, would you lift them up with thinking upon the promise? Help them to know that these are not just empty words, they're not platitudes, but they are the words of Christ, of a person who they can run to. And through running to Him and clinging to Him by faith, His powerful presence will pervade them and strengthen them and nurture them and preserve them in their calling. So Lord, help us all here as Your people to walk away this morning with a spiritual shot in the arm, with a sense of purpose and calling and duty, that we may go forward in the week ahead to serve to the glory of Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.